Okay. So welcome everyone to the second seminar of the politics of archives and struggles for emancipation. Um, for those that did not attend the first um, seminar, this series brings together Middle Eastern and Southern, Southern African scholars, archivists, artists, and filmmakers to share archival practices and experiences that seek to produce counter-hegemonic and emancipatory narratives. This online initiative is the more visible uh, facade um, of a broader project on the politics of archives initiated by the Institut Francais du Proche-Orient, WITS History Workshop, Birzet University, the Institute for Palestine Studies, uh, the Observatory of the Arab and Mu Muslim Worlds, and uh, IFAS uh, Research. Today's seminar focuses on the politics of film archives after liberation, particularly the ways films, as memory fragments and traces of history, can contribute to reproduce or unsettled past, but also to reimagine alternative futures. We will also discuss the challenges of working with film archives in the current political moment, particularly concerning access, indexing, copyrights, and visibility. Um, to address this and other questions, we're delighted to have with us Jihan Tahri and um, Sifiso Kanile, two wonderful and award-winning filmmakers who have a long experience in digging, studying, and critically engaging with colonial and liberation archives. Jihan Tagri is a film director, writer, visual artist, and producer. She has been a member of the Academy Oscar since 2017 and is currently on the selection committee of the Locarno International Film Festival. She has directed more than 15 films and her visual art exhibitions have traveled to renowned museums and several biennales around the world. Her writings include Les Sept de Jasser Arafat and Israel and the Arabs, The 50 Years War. She continues to mentor and direct various documentary and filmmaking labs. Jehan has also served on the boards of several African film organizations, including the Federation of Pan-African Cinema and the Guild of African Filmmakers in the Diaspora. Sifi Sokanlile is a Johannesburg-based filmmaker and archive researcher. He's also a member of the International Emmys, uh, Sifiso has produced nine films, uh, writing and directing four of those, including three award-winning documentaries, Uprise, A New Country, and The Reclaimers. His work is concerned with memory and history and how they continue to shape contemporary imaginations of South Africa. His ongoing project, Black Joy Under Apartheid, foregrounds Black leisure and pleasure under apartheid to offer counter-hegemonic narratives to Black victimhood. Sifisu is currently writing his debut narrative feature, Problematique. My name is Omar Jabari Salamanca, and I'm the co-director of the Observatory of the Arab and Muslim Worlds at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, and I'll be uh, moderating uh, today's session. I must say that I'm really excited to have this event included in our series because very often uh, film and audiovisual culture are often marginalized in the social sciences, which tend to fetishize text and textual archives. Um, I would also like to thank Matselitso Motsoane, uh, who is the one that put me in touch with Sifiso, and as it turns out, Sifiso and Jihan also knew each other, so it was a perfect match. Um, the idea for the seminar today is to have a conversation rather than back-to-back uh, -back presentations. I'll be asking some questions to Jihan and Sifiso for about an hour, and then we will open to you all. Uh, meanwhile, um, I invite you to um, add questions uh, in, the, in the chat box. 
Okay, so I would like to begin mentioning two recent controversies which involve the censorship of film archives. The first is related to the Board of South Africa's uh, Film and Publication Board, which recently ruled that uh, Usman Sembene's seminal 1966 film Black Girl contained hate speech and was not fit for a screening during the Joburg Film Festival. A second and similar incident took place during the 15th edition of Documenta when an expert panel an expert panel determined that an installation featured militant films of the Palestinian revolution from the 1960s to the 1980s was anti-Semitic because Israel was portrayed in a one-sided negative way. So beyond these very reasons, um, the very reasons that were given to justify these acts of censorship, I was wondering uh, why you think uh, these uh, or other film archives, for that matter, are so confronting and threatening in the uh, current political uh, moment? And maybe Jihan could get us started with the, with the documenta and fair, and then we will move with Sifiso uh, to hear more about the Joburg Festival. Jihan? Um, first of all, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for, uh, for all the... Uh, participants and friends to be there. Um, uh, it, 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 it's a, a very heavy question to start off with because it, it sounds like a simple thing, but it goes to the very root of, of where the problematics lie. And very ironically, I found myself right in the heart of both of them, the two problematics you, uh, you mentioned. Um, I'll let Sifiso talk more about the Film and Publication Board, but I think the one thing I want to say about the Black girl censorship is the fact that, first of all, it, it had passed the Film uh, and Publication Board previously, so it's a new change. And it was shown in the festival after all, but mainly because the person who could challenge that instruction had the political clout to do so. And I mentioned that because that is what we're actually dealing with, who has the clout to further agendas or not. Um, and in terms of Documenta, I think Documenta is a very, very important moment because it's, it's a moment where I think ourselves as artists were terrorized into auto-censorship. And I think when we talk about the missing image, it's one thing for archive and missing images that we try always to, uh, to find, to dig for, to piece together, but auto-censorship is a real threat. And when you have an entire nation, like what happened in Documenta, terrorizing anybody who touches on this theme. Uh, it's a very critical um, turning point. And for the moment, it's mainly Germany and it's less so elsewhere, but nobody is raising their voice. And I think the raising the voice and just even asking the questions is, is really important. Now, allow me to frame this in terms of censorship. Now, we can call it censorship, but it goes beyond censorship. It really is about the, 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 the decision of what narratives are to be 
allowed and what narratives are not allowed because censorship can be a one-off here and there. You allow this and you don't allow that. It's about something specific. But when an entire narrative is excluded um, and, and punished, uh, then it becomes much more problematic. And where we as artists and where we as filmmakers can insert ourselves in this equation is very important. And I'll take the opportunity to give a very simple example from one of the films I made. I made a film called The House of Saud in 2003. And it really was more about how did we get to 9-11? And in my film, I had four very separate sections, one about oil and security, one about modernity and Islam. Anyway, cut a long story short. And one of them was about, the Pal about Palestine and its role in all of this. And so I make the film, the film comes out on the BBC and then it's American version they call me up and they've taken out from the entire film, the Palestinian strand. So it wasn't like there was a section called Palestine. It was a strand that was weaved into the whole film. And it was a big fat fight because technically you're not allowed to do that. But when you look at the fine print, yes, they were allowed to do that. Now, where does resistance come in and how do you resist when such dominant and powerful institutions decide to censor a narrative in all its full trajectory. So I didn't really have an option, but I did go through the fine print and I found out that, yes, they're allowed to, to, to have final count, they're allowed to this, the stuff that I hadn't read in the fine print, but nowhere in there fine print did they say that I was obliged to give them the handles that are necessary for editing a clip. So I told them, fine, do what you want with the film. So they chopped it all up. And once they chopped it all up, they came back and say, okay, we need the handles of the images to re-edit. I said, there's nowhere in the fine print that says you need it. Sorry, I'm not giving it. And this battle went on for a year and a half and they say but you have to give it and I say no you can't cut it and say no so this battle that space of that battle became on this grain of sand where you can actually stop the machine okay and finally they said okay after a year and a half they said okay let's talk so okay let's talk and I think that's the difference between the exclusion of an entire narrative and the ability to have a space to negotiate it and censorship as such. Whereas Black Girl and the film board just deciding no out is a different thing, is a censorship thing. Thanks, Johan. Sifi, um, so you wanna jump in there? Uh, yes, for sure. Uh, also wanted to say um, uh, thank you, Omar. Uh, for having me here today. And I, um, you know, thought the Film Publications Board in South Africa, uh, I mean, the censorship of, of Black Girl was uh, ludicrous. Um, ludicrous in, um, in, in two folds. And I think um, the one way is speaks to, I guess, South Africa's general collective amnesia 
um, you know, censorship was heavily instrumentalized by the apartheid regime um, to sort of, you know, strengthen, strengthen their, their, their ideology. And they actually made martyrs of, um, <clears throat> of people who sort of didn't really play that much of an active role in the liberation struggle because of, you know, things that they said um, towards, you know, towards the government and its rule. And so this becomes interesting in that, um, for one, um, they, these are people who obviously are in a space that they don't engage very much in, because if they did, um, you know, they would know what uh, Black girl represents historically. Um, but secondly, I mean, I think that they should be aware of, you know, the, the space that they're in, in the sense that, you know, um, censorship and burning orders, like I said, were, you know, were, Sort of heavily instrumentalized by the apartheid government, and they sort of like repeating the same mistakes. Um, that's you know, uh, I mean, it wasn't maybe necessarily mistakes then, but you know, the same um, sort of ways in which they dealt with um, arts that sort of liberated people um, during apartheid. Um, and I think, secondly, um, I said it's ludicrous because I also think that this was a way of maybe. Um, wanting to seem to, um, to be effective in what they're doing. Um, it was performative for me uh, more than anything else. Uh, it wasn't necessarily about the film, but it was about the moment. Um, they're sending this message to South Africans to say that, look, uh, one, we exist, and secondly, um, we are effective in what we're sort of, you know, mandated to do. Um, I think for all people who spend a lot of their time um, looking at, you know, a lot of Hollywood films and sort of making into um, South Africa's theatrical platforms, um, they always seem to be, you know, caught off guard when there's conversations about, you know, the proliferation of violence uh, and maybe even pornography online. And so, you know, they'll hold think tanks and they'll talk about how they can improve um, <clears throat> on how they can control these images online. But I guess, you know, um, them trying to be effective in, in, in that space means that, you know, um, anything to them can easily sort of like pass off as, um, as offensive. Thank you. You're muted, Jihan. Yeah. Can I jump in a bit with the, with the documenter? Uh, going back to subversive films and the films they showed, because I think it's really important. Um, all the films were films from the 60s and 70s. And when this entire machine um, that literally uh, honed on to just this one word, anti-Semitism, and we're starting to dig into what is anti-Semitic and what isn't. What was really interesting is that since they had already investigated subversive films, the question of funding, like they'd been investigating everyone for three months and couldn't find anything. And at some point they said, okay, for one of the films and one of the and subversive films especially, had done something called the Tokyo Reels, which was the collection of it. And suddenly they wanted subversive films to, to, to condemn the um, Japanese Red Army. 
And uh, Mohanad Yaqubi, who was putting together the collection, calls me and says, okay, we need to write something to condemn the Japanese Red Army. And I told him, are you out of your mind? The Japanese Red Army has been disbanded for God knows how many years. You're going to look like a total idiot condemning something that was disbanded 20 years ago today. Why? He says, because if we don't, then they mean, it means that we're anti-Semitic. So that connection these connections of going back into history and trying to reinterpret history through the prism of today, I think is one of the transformations that we're living today that is the most dangerous. Um, the wordings of what is now politically correct or incorrect. And so there are certain words in the lexicon of what used to be said in the 60s and 70s that suddenly people want to change in the films of the archive. But then how are you going to understand that space of the 60s and 70s if you transform it within through the prism of today? And so I just thought that the idea of censorship goes beyond the narrative, beyond the actual stopping, but also in the use of wording and how that would, because in my work, one of the things I'm starting to look at is thinking of the archives of the future. And so we keep looking at the archives backwards, mm -hmm. but looking at the archives forwards is as important. And if we start using these, these politically correct formulas and, and applying them to a past that did not have these formulas, I think that's another way of um, transforming our own histories. Mm -hmm. So what is it in those, um, so beyond the, the very uh, politics of those two um, very distinct uh, acts of censorship and events, whether the job work or the documenta, what is it about these film archives? Maybe, um, uh, Sifiso, you can talk about the about the film um, Black Gale and what that film actually represents uh, for African cinema uh, and what that acts of you know that act of censorship implies. And maybe Jihan, you can also talk a little bit about those militant films and what is it? Why are those films important? Why are those archives important? Um, okay. So maybe you would want to share the link, you know, the variety link I sent you um, for, for, for the group, because the, the, the contextualization of Black Girl in that article is, is quite interesting. Okay, I'm going to scroll to find, oh, okay, here it is. Um, but just in answering your question, Omar, I think um, for me as a, as a filmmaker, I mean, this is one of the Sort of earliest examples of African cinema where you know you feel like as when you're watching it you feel like we have complete agency you know where you feel like um we could completely control the narratives and i in my work i look at both newsreel archives and cinema archives you know and i often talk about you know the level of participation um that you know you know africans sort of engaged in in in, in creating work and i think um, there's a period just before that, and especially in South Africa, um, that deals a lot with um, <clears throat> what I uh, <clears throat> what I often refer to as the you know the 
it was a period of like identity formation where it was very aspirational, but it was sort of controlled um, by white institutions, um, white money. So, you know, a lot of performance, a lot of performance films. And you can see from the images that, you know, um, the misery, it's quite misery, that's the word that I was looking for. Um, that, you know, it's not by people who are fully in control of, of the content um, that they're creating or that is created. And you'll often see this in the credits as well. Um, so you get to Black Girl and I think you get to a period um, that is, you know, um, profound for African cinema, because I think um, for the first time you can see us on our own terms, um, you know, um, you know, basically creating a, a narrative that we we own. And I think that um, throughout um, his profession, Osman Semen was excellent at this, you know. Um, and so, and so for me, this, you know, this is why this film is important to me. Um, and again, going back to the censorship, for me, I spoke about uh, collective amnesia, but it also speaks to just how little um, we know, especially as South Africans, about our own history and histories of representations uh, specifically. Um, because what you find is that we have the 1994 moment, right, which um, for me, actually did a lot of erasure. I wanted to talk about erasure as well earlier on. Um, in that, uh, Tihan, you even you talk about the vocabulary as well. Um, you know, the, 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 the struggle during apartheid dealt with extremes. You know, um, we you know, sort of knew who the enemy was. Uh, we had a vocabulary for, for our own oppression, what it, you know, what it meant for us. Um, and I think that when a moment comes, uh, to a people that says, okay, you're going to forget everything that you've known, you're going to forgive each other, and we're going to start on this new path. Um, and this new path offers, um, it did offer quite a few opportunities, but a lot of danger, um, danger in forgetting, which I think that South Africans are very good at collectively. Um, you know, it's very hard now to speak explicitly um, about our oppression. And I think this is maybe why it was so opportunistic for the Film and Publications Board to ban this film because, you know, um, it sort of seems to discriminate against white people. Um, but how do we then, um, do we use the archive and talk about our history, um, you know, to criticize, um, you know, sort of like, this, the status quo as it is now, because a lot of things haven't been, have been, a lot of institutions are untransformed. So how do we then speak about that if the archive itself, for example, speaks about, um, or, you know, is riddled with black victimhood? Um, so it's, 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 it, for me, uh, Jihan, it also sort of takes a lot of work going forward, speaking about the future archive, and that, you know, we have the opportunity in the present um, to make these transformations. Um, in the archive and repurpose them for, you know, for, for something different, where we do find spaces where we can talk about how the past has shaped the present. Um, I'd like to jump in on Black Girl again, um, just a little bit, because I think, I think that incident was extremely telling on many levels. Uh, uh, and and you'll uh, allow me, so I mean, I lived in South Africa for a long time, and I've made a film in South Africa. So that disconnect for me was quite flagrant, um, because obviously they had no idea 
what black gold represented for the rest of the continent. And at the same time, this the South African desire to be some kind of role model or lead uh, in the African um, image making in the in leading Africa in many ways. And that disconnect between South Africa and the rest of the continent was flagrant with the issue of black girl, because what was black girl? Black girl was absolutely, comes out in 1966. This is three years after the independence of Algeria. And it's in Cannes. And despite the touchiness, despite all of it, it's in Cannes. Huh? And it's the very first ever film where the point of view of the camera and the narrative from beginning to end is from the perspective and the vantage point of the African lady. And so it's a seminal film in the transformation of the point of view in cinema. Um, uh, so, so, so just cinematically speaking uh, and blocking it is not just about watching the film. How do you teach it at universities? What are film students in South Africa going to learn as the first moment of this transformation and done very elegantly through a very cinematic format if you ban such a film? So it was a really, really colossal moment of understanding the disconnect on the continent. But these disconnects exist within regions. And that's why the whole process of decolonizing the archive, I absolutely hate the word decolonizing because it means strictly nothing at the point that we're speaking. Everybody has adopted the word decolonization as um, the fun word to use. But, um, to, to really reassess the colonial archives, these, these sections, West Africa and its reality and the laws that were imposed on it at the time, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, the south of the continent, as opposed to South Africa, as opposed to the east of the continent, each one has its own uh, reality, its own laws, its own implementation. Now, for the archive, how do we as people trying to piece together just a very simple thing? I mean, I just feel sometimes I just turned 60 and like I spent the past 40 years of my life trying to piece together something that should have been an introduction to some some book. <laughs> you know, just piecing it together. I want to know what happened. I want to know what was happening at this place at that time. And you're find, just finding the pieces of the puzzle is, is, is very difficult. Now, if we add on top of it, that we start banning from our own side, these pieces of the puzzle to become part of our own conversation. And we see this happening for political reasons, for military reasons, for now Islamic, Islam, whatever you want to call it, Islamic jihadi, terrorist, Islamophobia, slash whatever. Uh, we need to look at these things, examine them, understand where they came from. Yeah. Um, 
Thanks for that. I, I, I would maybe like to bring these down to, to your own work and see what has, I mean, very often archives are taken as faithful testimonies of the past. And I was, I was wondering if you could share some of your experience while working with colonial and liberation archives to make your films. So uh, maybe, um, uh, Sifiso, you, you've made this wonderful film called Uprise, where you go through the um, where you've used uh, apartheid material. And I was wondering, what did it take for you to go through that material, to encounter that material, to search that material, and to critically engage with it, and maybe share with us a little bit about what that film was uh, was about and, and you know, and your uh, grappling with the archive. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, so there's, uh, the film Uprise is about, you know, the student uprising of 1970s. Of 1976, um, we started in uh, Soweto and um, spread to all other parts of the country. And I mean, what sparked the uprising was the decree that you know all public schools in Black townships will use Afrikaans as a language of instruction. Um, so you know the student resisted this, but they used the decree for a broader a broader struggle. Right, there was a more of a, a liberation struggle because there are other demands that they started coming in, and you know we see sort of similarities between the 1976 uprising and you know the struggles, for example, of Peace Must Fall and Rose Must Fall that happened around 2014, 2015. Um, but going back to uprise, um, this is you know the, a film that I produced, that I directed, that I wrote and directed. Um, and did the archive for. And I think that, you know, there's something very interesting about South Africa in that, you know, we find sort of little pockets for, for, for commemoration. And you usually have like days, you know, there's um, Youth Day on June 16, when, you know, people wear school uniform to, I guess, celebrate um, the, the youth of 1976 who, you know, waged the liberation struggle against the monolithic. Um, government, um, oppressive government. So um, it just feels like the, the, the conversations generally doesn't go outside of those commemoration pockets, like those special day for Shadwell, which, you know, uh, became Human Rights Day. Um, and, and so for me, it was a film that was, sorry, it was a topic that was widely spoken about. But what I wanted to do was present the history differently. Um, but also in speaking about hegemonies, um, what we've seen for from the, 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 the ruling party in South Africa is co-opting other people's struggles or maybe narratives and owning them to form part of, you know, part of the agenda. And so what was clear to me, which I think was vague to a lot of people, and what became clear to me in my research is how much of the struggle was um, the struggle of the Black consciousness movement, you know, and not um, <clears throat> sort of a nebulous black liberation struggle. It's not part of the ANC, it's not a part of the Pan-Africanist Congress, the PAC, but specifically, um, um, you sort of emerges from the black consciousness movement. So that was the one thing. I think that was kind of like a very important narrative for me to run throughout the film, to remind people that, you know, where the struggle was coming from. Because again, um, we're very, or, you know, very good at forgetting. But secondly, um, I think a lot of the archives that I've come across um, and, you know, was sort of, um, there was a lot of violence on the black body, 
you know, um, and you sort of get in there and you understand that, you know, these archives or these images had a particular function at a very specific, at a particular um, time, you know, I think the 70s is when um, the conversations around <clears throat> uh, boycotting the South African our South African companies or doing businesses, uh, business with South, South Africa. And, you know, people talking of divestment, I uh, was happening during this time. And I think maybe to some degree, it was important to show how, you know, how bad it was, you know, to show the brutality. But what we're left with in the archives is, you know, a string of black bodies lying on the ground, nameless, um, you know, all you see is, uh, is, is, is faces. And I think that's, there was also conversation. Sorry, there was also a lot of conversation about apartheid fatigue. People saying, you know, people who should be concerned about, you know, apartheid and its effects on on current South Africa were saying, young people especially, you know, we have apartheid fatigue. Um, you know, we keep seeing these films of, you know, of about apartheid, and we are trying to to move on. So, you know, this kind of posts um, a challenge in how do you make um, work that is different, that asks different questions, that is um, that is interesting, but also presents maybe a different and fresh um, archive. Um, and so that was the challenge for me in that I was looking for images that had, you know, minimal, um, you know, black victimhood or images of uh, black people dying and, you know, um, sort of like abject um, violence on, 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 on the black body. And um, so that was the first step for me, was just to, in telling stories about apartheid, um, how do we then start to do things differently? Um, how do we look at archives, apartheid archives differently? Because you will see a lot of violence and you will see a lot of defeat. Um, but those moments where, you know, the students are fighting back uh, or people are raising um, their fist, the, the black power salute, uh, fist in the air moment. It was really just playing with those kind of images um, to sort of show sort of the more, you know, um, more affirming uh, moments of our struggle. So I think that was the first thing when it, when it, when, um, that I looked at when, um, when working with archives on, uh, on Uprise. Yeah, Jihan, in, in your film, Nasser, Egypt's uh, Modern Pharaohs, you, um... You also deal with uh, an ingent uh, quantity of um, of archives, and and these are like national. Um, I mean, they are conceived under the header of national liberation archives. So, what does it mean to work with 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 those archives for you? And what what is the process in in which you take this archive and you sort of demystify these liberation narratives? You go behind it and sort of you reappropriate um, that, and yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 saying a bit too much to say it was National Archive because uh, I literally had to gather this from uh, the photographers who were there, the kids who were there, stuff that. So it really was uh, uh, archaeology more than access to the National Archive because you do not get access to the National Archive categorically. So, I mean, and, and I think that's something we'll probably talk about later because um, because the erasures that Theresa was talking about are not just about the erasures of memory. They're also our own erasures. They're also our government desires to, uh, 
Um, I remember Spiso was working with me on the film we we did um, um, on the ANC. And one of the things we were discussing this when I was in South Africa last week, uh, that I kept trying to figure out what is it that is blocking the system? And one of my answers, which I have seen repeatedly while doing my other films, is that every liberation movement, every new government, every national um, body that comes to power needs to create its own mythology. And its mythology is very much based on the archive. So the purifying the archive, transforming the archive, uh, using out of context the archive are all part of constructing the future too. And I think that's really important. So in my Nasser film, I remember when I started looking for images, it suddenly struck me, was there no moment of the life of this man when he was standing without an entire population cheering for him? It's like there is not an image of Nasser where people are not, yes, I am, you know? And like, is there, is there no other context where we can see Nasser? And it took a lot of hard work to find a representation of Nasser that doesn't look like that, that isn't the hero. Uh, so just the everyday life. And of course, I had been doing a lot of research, so I knew what was happening at the same time as these images. So it's really um, how we, and that's where the role of filmmakers and image workers in all their formats, be it even as VR, as, as uh, artists, as uh, whatever, our role is, is fundamental because the only indication of an alternative representation usually comes from the art world or the film world. Either like usually just after that person dies. And so in the, the um, in the case of Nasser, um, the minute I said, I want to look for images of Nasser to, an, uh, to the TV, like the archive in Egypt technically was deposited in four different spaces. Huh? So it took me about two years to just get the logs. Huh? Uh, and I like getting the logs was the biggest achievement of all time, because at least I knew what was filmed and what was not filmed. Huh? Now, finding the images of the logs is a completely different matter, of course. Okay. Now you go back to these four spaces and half of the archives have been sold. Saudi Arabia bought the entire archive of Hayat al-Istahmal al-Salamat for a million dollars. So you have entire films, entire loads of, and, that, and we're talking in, in the 90s. 
And so I said, okay, maybe you will find them in the Ministry of Information. Well, Ministry of Information, turns out that the guy who ran the archives used to sell them. So I find, ended up going to private collectors and the private collector, somebody was just interested in this aspect and they'd say, oh, but my competition guy is interested in this. So it really is how do you, it's, it's like a piece of a puzzle, putting together a piece of a puzzle. And the minute I said, the word Nasser, it was like, what are you gonna say about him? It's like, I don't know, I'm researching. So how do I know in advance what I'm gonna say? So there's a jealousy about how you then transmit history, which I myself indulged in, as Fiso knows. I had a big issue when I was doing my South Africa film of how to deal with Mandela, whom I had interviewed, but who, according to my research and according to everything that was in the film, a big issue of what happened later was Mandela's absence. Mandela not willing to intervene in getting some feuds sorted. And so my decision was to exclude Mandela from my film because that was the only way I could talk about an icon without breaking it. Because I don't want to be the person who starts breaking an icon and it's going to live there forever. No, I can't do that. Especially that on our continent, we need icons. We don't have that many. So, so, so it's important to find languages to try and, 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 and at least leave the crumbs for future generations to follow. And it would be easier in the future for them to look into the past. And that's what I think our work, Sofiso and I, is about. We can come in the 2000s and look in 76 and break it down and ask questions that people would not be able to ask at the time. And so part of our duty as archive researchers and archive uh, um, uh, practitioners is also to leave crumbs of things that we, a trail of crumbs of things that we cannot deal with right now. I don't know if I can add to that, Omar. Yes, you can. Uh, I think what, what is very um, <clears throat> interesting and special about South Africa is that, you know, when we often think about the archive, um, we usually, you know, think about, um, you know, images, uh, films, or even, you know, document texts. But we don't necessarily think about, um, you know, architecture, for example, or spatial planning, how cities are, are designed, for example. And South Africa is interesting in the sense that, you know, um, the apartheid spatial planning um, is still very much intact. You know, um, you know, the you have the economic centers which are the cities, and just outside of that you have the suburbs, and not too far you have what we call townships. Um, we sort of functioned as labor reserves, which is where the majority of black people who could be um, close to the city um, or work in the city could, you know, live, come into the city, work, and then leave 
in the evenings. Uh, you know, they used to have curfews. Um, and so that sort of apartheid spatial design hasn't been transformed at all. So it means that even the economic flow, um, how money flows in South Africa is still, is still the same. And people now talk a lot about um, <clears throat> um, e economic uh, liberation, um, which is very interesting because what it means is that um, as much as you can take people who um, sort of, you know, were called, you know, referred to as formerly um, oppressed, into these new spaces, spaces that cannot take everyone. So the erasure works so effectively that even with all this evidence around you, that is apartheid spatial planning, um, you know, there's still not an urgency uh, to, you know, to sort of like transform our society. Um, and this is, I find it interesting because it always feels like there's going to be a revolution in South Africa. It always feels like it's not far. Um, you think to yourself, the way things are going, um, the, 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 the rich and poor divide and how, you know, how bad it's getting, um, that at any given moment, um, you know, people will take to the street and you know, there won't be any looking back and we're going to see a revolution. But for some reason, it never comes because I think that the narratives that are created around um, democracy, the ideas of democracy and, 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 and freedom um, are so strong that you know, um, the ideas of social cohesion, um, of unity are still very much strong today. So the 1994 project in South Africa still um, is still very strong. Um, I, I went into this uh, jihad because I'm reminded. I was reminded of this when you spoke about Nelson Mandela, in that you talk about his, you know, his absence or the deliberate absence um, in your film. And when we talk about archive, especially South African liberation archive, this is someone who. With your eyes closed, you can pick any clip. You can go to Reuters um, library uh, and just click on a couple of a couple of clips, um, and you're bound to see Mandela. So this is someone who's documented really well. So you know, outside of the newsreel archives, we have documentaries that the many documentaries that were made about him. We have the concerts that were made about him or in his honor that are documented. So it's also very hard for archive um, practitioners who want to create alternative um, narratives or want to focus on specific figures who are not so well documented. And you see that the, <clears throat> it is the same, um, the, the archive almost reflects the hegemonic narrative that the ANC um, was, was, was so well invested in pushing out and that it becomes very hard to tell the apartheid story without mentioning Mandela or without showing uh, Mandela, it almost feels like, you know, um, something's missing. How, you know, how can you talk? I mean, this was, a, you know, a struggle that was largely waged by the people beyond what the liberation movements were doing. But if you were to tell that film, it's almost, I think to, the, to, to a lot of outsiders, it would seem as though you, I don't know, maybe missed a point, or, you know, if you deliberately omit Mandela from the apartheid liberation narrative, they, but they, that's what, yeah. I just wanted to apply this to FLN, apply this to Algeria, apply this to every single country, suddenly ends up with a single narrative and a single liberation movement, as though the others never existed. Yeah, so the point 
you know, like Jihan, you were saying, it's like, uh, and, I, and I found that really um, interesting, no? It's like, how do we leave those icons? Because we don't have so many, no? And the question is precisely, how do we find other icons, no? Because it's full of icons, which is done, you know, haven't been able, because, you know, particularly in colonial contexts where all the archives have been dismembered, destroyed, uh, you know, dispersed uh, in the ways that you were saying they are closed. Um, so how do we go about finding those alternative histories that, you know, still remain in the margins, whether there are figures that are, you know, neglected, you know, um, um, women or collectives or parties or unions, etc. And um, so how do we go about that? I found one very recently that blew my mind away. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of music. Uh, and especially electronic music, um, not only, but also. Um, and for everyone who knows anything about electronic music, um, the father of electronic music is Pierre Schaefer and his first album in 1948 and all of that. And then suddenly I discover that in 1944, sorry, there's something going on here. In 1944, an Egyptian called Halim al-Daba um, actually produced an electronic uh, album that was out in 1944, four years earlier than Pierre Schaefer. And I think the reason I say that is that it's, it's not about they don't exist or they haven't done anything, but it is what value is given so the fatherhood of anything major somehow by definition has to go to someone from the West. The fact that four years earlier, that exact same format and that exact same kind of genre of creation came out on, almost on the same label is dismissible. So how do we, it's not just about how do we find these people, it's how do we give these people or these ideas or these collectives the space? How do we give them the space? Because it's not, the problem is not by uh, finding them. Right now I'm here in Burkina Faso, we're working on a film with a young uh, Senegalese guy about the commander of the Northern region in, uh, um, in, in uh, Guinea-Bissau, the lady whose iconic photograph, she's carrying a gun with a shishia and carrying a baby at the same time. And everybody knows the picture, but nobody knows who this woman is. And he had to spend months and months until he found out the exact, that. so it's, it's how do we give the space and construct give them their due actually, not even construct a narrative. It's just how do we give people their due and more importantly, how to collectivize that space because somehow we want one person to be responsible or one person to be the icon. But this woman in Guinea-Bissau, she's called uh, Commander Titina, uh, Titina Sila. Uh, Titila was one out of 20 women who went to the Soviet Union and then to Havana to go training and then came back. Now, everybody talks about this one woman because of that one picture. What happened to the other 19? Some of them are still alive. 
So how do we create that space? And I think in film, it's something we can do. What's, uh, what's interesting about that image, sorry, um, Jihan, is that um, I don't know if you are aware, but it's um, sort of, it, it was circulating on social media um, for the longest time, I think maybe even close to about 18 months where people were sharing it um, <clears throat> and saying that it was a woman whose name I forgot now, a South African woman who fought in the um, ANC's Encontro Vesizwe, which is the liberation wing of the ANC. Um, name and surname. Um, and, you know, for many months, a lot of people were, you know, commemorating and, you know, celebrating her and saying, let's not forget about, you know, women's participation in the struggle for liberation. And this is the person, this is one of the people that were, you know, that were sacrificed during the South African liberation struggle. And it was that very same image. And I know which image you're talking about. That's where contextualizing um, uh, uh, contextualizing images are a, is a it's a huge um, chantier. How do you say chantier? It's a, it's yeah. still uh, mm. it's a field that we haven't even started. Oh. And I'm not even going to talk about indexing because the number of things that you receive the images, and if you don't know the face of the person yourself, mm. and the image says that's who it is. Well, you take it for granted. The number of times I've come across an image is like, what do you mean it's that person? I know it's this other person. And if you don't have a reference or someone to go to and say, who is this person? And, and, and that's why when I say about archives of the future, there's so many people still alive who are sitting there who have the keys to so much of this and we're ignoring them. Because yeah. not bringing something interesting or sexy to the table, but what they have is the keys to a lot of what is still locked behind. That's uh, it's been a very interesting aspect to to my work as archive researcher because it means that even with clips that we've seen over and over again, for example, if you see a clip or image of Nelson Mandela outside a courthouse and he's surrounded by you know. Um, eight, ten other people with him. Uh, and maybe you know four people who are foregrounded in that image, or five. Um, but then when you start <coughs> to dig deeper and you see consistency in, say, the one person right at the back who's nameless, um, but who sort of tends to appear in several clips that you keep finding, and then all of a sudden, all these images that you kept seeing have this, um, you know, a character who you know, somewhat, you know, central to, you know, to, to the liberation struggle, but just maybe not so much um, in, you know, centralized in, in, in the history of the liberation struggle. Um, and it happens in that way. And I think that part of the role is to also have like a corrective approach to history. You see a lot of documentaries that speak about the ANC, for example, that will use images of the Pan-Africanist movement in, in, during Shabdil. Um, you know, waging their uh, struggle, which, you know, they sort of planned and executed, you know, um, <clears throat> on, on, on their own and, you know, sort of um, created this moment, which would then be a turning point in our history that would also go to the United Nations and, you know, have them, um, you know, make certain policies um, 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 with regards to human rights. 
But yeah. you know, um, a lot of people that are, you know, Robert Sabukwe, who's um, PAC, you know, who we're celebrating today because you know um, um, he died on this day. Um, he's he's a lot of his archives were archives were destroyed um, by the apartheid government. You know, they were trying to completely destroy his voice. So um, you don't see a lot of him in the archive. You know, um, there's, you know, his speeches, uh, which there aren't many of, a couple of interviews and a couple of images. Um, his voice and his moving image, um, almost if not completely non-existent. So um, apart from the work of having to excavate, continuously excavating archives to find uh, particular figures who, you know, sort of played an important role. It is also about what Jihan has mentioned in that you have to sort of like correct certain things because the indexing is incorrect. Because the central or what is deemed as important history in the moment of uh, documentation might be this one figure which happens to be in the front, but we sort of tend to forget everything that's happening in one single frame. There could be so many traje historical trajectories in one single frame. Um, and I think a lot of people necess don't necessarily engage with that, but there's a responsibility, um, I think, for um, the archive researcher to ask as many questions as they can, with like every single frame they come across in the archive, say, you know, what conditions produced this? Um, who are the people involved and, and for what end? Um, and who are the people who were involved? Um, and that, and I think when you ask the deeper questions, um, sort of, you know, the, 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 the bigger plot starts to reveal itself. And you realize that um, the, 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 there's, a, there's a lot that sort of has now entered into the, uh, the space of myth that might not be necessarily so. And I mean, I use that one image um, that, you know, that you referred to, you referred to earlier on. Um, but, you know, there are other examples like that where you know, okay. a lot of images that have been um, sort of mis sort of appropriated to represent something else. At the risk of offending um, uh, a lot of you academics sitting around, I'm gonna take that risk anyway. Um, I think the whole academic structure of footnoting and bibliography and referencing, because if it's not, footnoted, bibliographized, and referenced, then it doesn't exist. That is one of the biggest blockages to alternative narratives. Huh? Because when nothing has been written in a book that is published and has a reference number and the rest of it, then it doesn't exist. And I, and I think of my Cuba film, Cuba's African Odyssey, as, as, as a good example of this, because it was by complete accident. I'd read everything written about it. I'd done like my homework proper and everything was saying the same narrative. And I find one piece of paper that says something that just doesn't make sense. How can this have happened at the same time as that? So I start following it and I get to the point where I, I'm not gonna get into the details, um, but, I go to the guy who used to run the African department in the KGB and I'm asking him about Che in the Congo and the rest of it. And after a moment of silence, he eventually says, well, we didn't know. 
And I was like, what do you mean you didn't know? He said, we didn't know that Che was in the Congo. It's like, but all your arms and weapons were there. Like, what do you mean you didn't know? He says, okay, we found out in 1996 on this date because that's what happened. We did not know. And suddenly you have an, an entire alternative narrative that you need to research from A to Z and not a scrap of it exists in writing. So you have to chase the people who are alive and suddenly you realize like, damn, like everybody, there's this other part of history as it happened that existed and everybody confirms the where and the how and the when, but nobody has ever written it. So do you just cancel this just because it's not footnoted and has a bibliography? And again, that's why I sorry, I keep coming as though I'm making the promotion of film, which I am, I guess. Um, but film is a space where you can do that. You can have a firsthand eyewitness who talks to you and tells you a part of history that has not been documented. And that alternative narrative is what we shy away from. And I think we have an obligation to start looking at it in these critical times. I mean, I wish that uh, people in the university would actually uh, footnote and uh, bibliographize everything that should be footnoted. But unfortunately we don't. I think part of this project uh, aim is precisely to to really center those uh, stories in the margin and oral histories and public histories. No, so that that is uh, what is uh, central to a lot of the work that we're trying to do. But I wanted to go back to the the issue of archaeology and 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 maybe you can share uh, for us who you know I suppose many uh, that do not work with with. Um, with audiovisual material, uh, what does it mean? I know that uh, uh, Jihan has been doing uh, films using archive material when nobody was doing documentary film doing that, and what it meant, and what is the state of the infrastructure? Where does then you know go? Uh, what do you find today in terms of accessing those films? The problems that you know Sifiso was also mentioning in terms of uh, indexing, but also in terms of copyrights. What does it mean to look at material that you know you need to pay excessive amounts of money for just getting a little peek, and how that you know uh, makes really complicated to tell any story through images? Um, I don't know. Maybe Sifiso, you want to start with that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think the the biggest barrier. Um, for, for me right now and a lot for a lot of filmmakers is um you know for with regards to access is um price um a lot of these archives especially south african um archives um you know owned by foreign agencies so you know the people who are doing a lot of the documentary now when you say that the bbc um south africa didn't have a um <clears throat> a public broadcaster until uh, television broadcaster until January 1976. So everything up until then um, was documented by mainly, um, say, Reuters, ITN, and the BBC. And I think that for a lot of filmmakers who, um, you know, emerging filmmakers who want to take on historical um, <clears throat> films or even uh, political films, um, you know, price is a big uh, is 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 a big um, barrier uh, for them. Um, and also some of the things that we sort of mentioned earlier on that with the indexing, indexing being incorrect, um, 
lot of um, filmmakers or writers, we, con we continuously um, see the same sort of material on screen because um, a lot of these, you know, the clips that are sort of, there's a lot of laziness as well. So, you know, a lot of these agencies will present you the same clips if you give them a theme and say, um, these are the, you know, these are the topics or, you know, you know the subjects of the film. And generally, they'll give you the say the things that are quite familiar. And so you, I guess, have the responsibility to dig in deeper. And I think for a lot of people, also just understanding the um, the archive landscapes, the landscape from a rights point of view. What does it mean um, to use something commercially? What does it mean uh, to use something for educational purposes? What is it that you can get away with? You know, what is fair use? Um, what counts? Um, as fair use. And I think that, um, you know, these sort of um, policies that are sort of drawn around um, copyrights around the archives and really, you know, um, sort of like communicated clearly and, and, and uh, to, you know, to um, a lot of researchers who, who, who work with archives. The other thing is also, um, you know, the materiality of the archive, um, you know, you know, you do find stuff that's shot really well, and it maybe depends on who shot that material and for what use. Um, so you might find that um, working with colonial archives, um, someone like me, for example, who um, will find, say, you know, uh, the, the, the BBC's African reels, uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, would look, they shot on 35 mil, they look great. Um, and you might find one or two archives that fall outside of that, um, outside of the ethnographic, um, that aren't as polished, that, you know, um, are hardly usable. And you have to think about how, you, but that are special in content. Um, and you have to think about how, you know, how to incorporate those, um, those archives into film. Jihan, you also, um, um, wanted to invite you to talk, but also to mention perhaps something about that manifesto that circulated some time ago called the Liberate the Image, I mean, a manifesto to restitute collective memory. Um, and, and, you know, what is it that can be done in order to, you know, get back those archives that belong to the people of the South and that now are behind paywalls? I think we're, we're at a very um, interesting juncture because we're at a period where talking archive is, is, is part of the mainstream. You're not just battling to say, oh, archive is important. People have recognized the importance of archive. So that adds a new nuance to it, which is careful <laughs> because even the idea of conservation and preservation which is very important. But then the question is, who decides what we preserve and what we conserve? And why do we have to conserve and preserve everything? So all these are, are questions that are starting to be put on, on the table. Now, Liberate the, man, the, the Image Manifesto came from a series of archive workshops that we started ages ago. And I'm part of several um, groupings. Um, most of us have been working with the archive for more than 20 to 25 years. So 
all of us were the uh, the ugly ducklings who had to twist the channel's arm to say um, the the technical specs, because one of the issues of the archive is broadcasting had technical specs, and so if your archive didn't meet the technical spec, you, they couldn't broadcast the film. So we had to come up with all these ways and means to meet the technical specs or convince them to lower them. So um, there was a group starting with the Black Audio Collective in London huh? in the in the 80s. So I've worked with John, with Kojo, with June Giovanni, Keith Cheery, all these people. We were we were like Amazons of the archive at the time. And nobody wanted to listen to us. Now, how this has changed, it has also entered the factor of be careful, it's becoming too popular. What is it we want out of it, I think is, is, is very key. Now, today there are a lot of foundations, a lot of institutions that are throwing money into the conservation and preservation. We're not saying no. Hallelujah, thank God. But that is not the only item. How do we distinguish what is what? We did the, the, the mass of what needs to be done. How do we continue a, a, and gather people to work in the same direction than rather have these, uh, what Edward Said used to call dukanet, meaning little shops. Huh? How do we all work in the same direction? to make this happen. Because if each one has his own little fun to do his own little thing, these will never connect or reconnect. So uh, I think that's also part of our, uh, uh, of our mission. Now, the complexity, I, I might have kind of lost the thread of what you were asking me, um, but I do think that we're at a critical moment and liberate the image was about liberating the image. What does this image say? How do we appropriate it? Per to be perfectly honest, more and more nowadays, most of the colonial archives, I take out the sound. I don't want to know what they're saying. I'm going to appropriate this image because I know where it's happening. I know what, it, what time it was. I probably know what the context in, and I'm not gonna let you tell me what this is. And we're gonna appropriate it, we'll look at people, and I don't care. Because it's part of our reconstruction of a narrative. If I have to listen to um, another Belgian saying how much, how long the nose is for you to be a Hutu or a Tutsi, we're gonna be engaged in that narrative forever. Sorry, bye-bye, rawa. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, don't we want to open this to... Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say it's something in closing, uh, Jihan, that connects to what yeah. you're saying now. And I guess it speaks to, um, you know, the future of archives. And I guess the sort of like, um, I don't know, the sort of agency we can take in dealing with archives, right? And um, I've seen a lot more um interesting conversations around how 
we can appropriate violent archives of, say, colonialism, um, maybe slavery, and even apartheid. And you know, then you spoke about John earlier on. And I'm assuming that you're speaking about John Acompra, um, you know, who sort of came up with the philosophy of montage. And he says that you know, um, by taking you know one or two or two or more um, <clears throat> sort of um, archived uh, images, you start to create something that sort of speaks differently to the imagination. Um, and I think that we need to sort of allow ourselves to create new myths about who we are using the very um, archives, you know? And I think that, you know, it's the same conversation. I think um, the filmmaker, American filmmaker uh, and visual artist, Arthur Javer, um, has something that he's sort of termed black, black visual intonation. And it's usually just like a collection of archives and you know creating little pieces which are usually very provocative. But they sort of some, somehow you know are taken out of taken out of the original context um, to create something new um, about black people, mainly in the United States. You know, um, and the extension of this is also seen in um, Saidia Hardman's work. You know, who comes with you know um, what she terms uh, critical fabulation. And in her work, she generally just, uh, she usually takes a lot of, you know, sort of like smaller um, characters, especially black or historical characters. And it's usually black women um, that she takes out of stories um, and sort of, you know, broadens um, the history around them that, um, that, that one uh, figure. Um, and so it becomes interesting in the way that, you know, you can use archives in sort of, you know, creating either a larger body of work or, a, 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 a sort of like re, a whole recreation of the identity of the archive. And um, I think for me, what the where the conversation should um, converge is on access, what we allowed and not allowed to do. And I think we spoke uh, briefly about it. What do we give ourselves permission um, to appropriate and, you know, um, and, and, and sort of like reinterpret into something else because there are these boundaries um, when it comes to access with, with archives. Thank you, Sifiso. Thank you, Ihan. Those are great insights and I hope um, that we get some questions. So I would like to open um, to uh, anybody and please maybe turn on your camera and ask the question. I already see uh, Noor, um, with a question, so go ahead, Noor. Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Omar. Um, and uh, a special thanks to Sipiso uh, and Jihan. That was just fantastic, uh, listening to the two of you, um, having very insightful and reflective conversations. Um, I, and, yeah, I, I agree with almost everything that you've said. Um, I, I do have a slight disagreement on footnotes, which I'll come to in a second. <laughs> Inevitably, right? You would have expected uh, the, the bunch here to have some disagreement with you on that, uh, if nothing else. Um, I, I have a question about the future um, and, and your role as film producers, filmmakers, producers of history, in fact. Um, and I wonder um, how you perceive your role um, in the making of archives. Um, I, I think we've had a wonderful kind of critique of the, uh, of the problems that one faces 
across the continent and elsewhere, but particularly on our continent, in relation to the existing archives, which have largely been produced, at least in the case of South Africa, uh, by the colonial, colonial and apartheid regimes. So that's the archive one is working with. Um, I mean, circumstances differ across the world, but in South Africa, the problem, one of the big problems we have with the archive at the moment is that the democratic government is not particularly keen on archives. Uh, if you compare the archival kind of mission to that of the apartheid government, it's quite amazing just how different it is and how little attention has been given. And in fact, the archive is probably in crisis. So the question really to both of you is, you know, uh, what role potentially also responsibility do you see yourselves having in the creation of new archives, uh, rather than only kind of excavating, albeit in very critical ways, existing archives? What about your work do you, do, do, do you imagine to be uh, not only about uh, in interpretation, or, you know, artistic uh, production and creativity, but also archiving? Uh, to what extent is archiving central uh, in your own practices, in the way that you go about doing your work? And then, just the, so that's that's the question. I just want to say, Gian, and I think that uh, that that footnotes are precisely what you say. They're the crumbs that lead people to the sources, and therefore, I think they're indispensable. Thanks. Are there only other questions? And we can take maybe another question to I see Jihan. Yes. Yes, hello, hello, Jehan. Uh, hello, hello, everybody. Uh, I would like to go on the manipulation or the practice of the archives uh, and the difference between um, the practice or the manipulation of the archives uh, with the filmmakers that you are, and you have uh, given us a wonderful um, uh, experience, uh, expose of your, of your experience with the archives. And when Jihan uh, Tahri, um, you say that uh, uh, you cut the sound because the sound is, it doesn't interest you and you reappropriate the archives. And I think here is a, a slight difference between a historian who will uh, take the archive or the visual archives with all all the elements that are in the in the archives in in, in terms to analyze it and to write it. Uh, so I I want to to reflect with you on on this. Uh, practice of the archives and the practice of the archives uh, uh, with uh, each disciplinary each discipline and if we are now mixing all this discipline and working to a future where historian filmmakers filmmakers became historian historian maybe become uh, filmmakers and um, uh, to take off all the boundaries that exist between uh, uh, those two words between arts and, and science. Thank you. Thank you again. Okay, so I think okay, we, so um, we, uh, we lost. Uh, we lost uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm back. And she's back. Okay, uh, sorry. Yeah, I'm no, back no. on my phone, so yeah. I don't know how this works exactly, but uh, we'll... Okay. It's working for now. Uh, we had a question, Jihan uh, Sfer. You might want to ask that question again uh, in brief because uh, Jihan was missing. Uh, I don't mind. 
Yes, it was about the manipulation and the apprehension of the archives between the artists and the historians, scientists, sociologists, etc. And uh, when you said that you cut off the sound of uh, the the movie of uh, the film of archives that you hear, uh, I I had as a historian, even if it's it's been there is it's been said already about the narratives etc the sound is very interesting for a historian Absolutely. and i was like asking i was i was asking the question for the future because we we you talked about the future if the boundaries between arts and science between historians and between filmmakers is going to disappear and historians will become filmmakers and filmmakers will become historian could it be like that could it could and and uh, they could okay, be like just blow the methodology. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's already the case. Already the case. Some, uh, Some uh, historians are, I don't know why this is doing this, but never mind. I think historians are, lots of them are filmmakers and vice versa. Uh, and this, this whole um, wanting to peg uh, people in one specific corner is disappearing it's disappearing with the technology it's disappearing with the multidiscipline. but let me go backwards and say that the, the the space i'm coming from is that every time you touch an archive and use it in any format you yourself are creating a new archive uh, so so once you are doing that the question for me is, what is it now that you are creating a new archive based on the old, um, based on a reflection or a critique or a going along with or whatever you choose, but the minute you touch it and put it in a different context, in a different time for a different audience, then you're creating something new. So I do believe that the role of the artist the filmmaker is absolutely fundamental in the collective memory of something. Now, the sound, of course, uh, even at least out of curiosity, you're going to listen to it, but allowing it to be the, 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 the sacredness of the archive, which is a phase I went through, I won't deny it. Huh? Uh, my first phase early on when I was looking for archive was a phase of archaeology and sacredness. You find a piece of footage and you think that you've added to the history of the world something that had been lost forever. And, and, but then you get to the point where you tell yourself, well, hold on a minute. Why was this bit filmed that day and not what was happening next door. And so Spiso talks about Sadia Hartman and everybody um, refers to Sadia Hartman about critical fabulations. Now, I find it as interesting, her concept of silencing the image, not just the missing image, the silencing of images. So our government choice to send out a film crew to film this event rather than the demonstration that was actually happening means that in the archive, what is it you're gonna find? You're gonna find the event and not the demonstration. 
So I think that bridge between the different disciplines and how we can piece together an idea, part of it is about appropriation. And as an artist and as a filmmaker, I have the space for individual appropriation. I am not, I am not claiming that I'm a historian. And that's where it's good. Because a historian has a sacredness also. So I guess, I guess I'm, uh, I'm coming a bit out of the space of we need to desacralize all of this in order to interpret it. In order to wrap our heads around it, we haven't even gotten that far. So you want to go? Sorry, just to add a little bit, um, and I think Jihan, you sort of dealt with this notion well in saying that you're not interested in you know how long the nose is or short it is to make you a Tutsi or a Hutu from you know um, from 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 indulging. And I think that's one of the most important aspects of dealing with the archive. And I mentioned this in the beginning to say that there's a lot of violence in the archive. Um, you know, um, you know, the violence that sort of like speaks to who you are, the person who's faced with it. And I think that um, for a lot of archive researchers, we sort of like get into the space where we have to deal with what's um, called, you know, salvage ethnography. Um, because part of the responsibility um, of our work is to change the narrative, um, because we know how, you know, our histories have been denigrated, um, how it's been reduced. And so how do you um, present a, a new narrative um, using a visual language? Um, and this is where, you know, um, archives can come in. And I think, um, sorry, this also speaks to Noah's question about the work that we're doing now as, 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 as filmmakers and how are we sort of archiving the moment. And I think that, um, you know, we, you can use the past to sort of um, give context or critique um, the present. And what's left out of that is obviously, you know, um, an archive for future generations to tap into, to say that, um, you know, one archive exists, let's say, you know, in colonial or apartheid uh, uh, archives that has a very specific narratives about who people are. Um, but, you know, as filmmakers today, we have, I guess, that opportunity to then tell, you know, um, the different narratives. And what I referred to it, and do what I referred to earlier on is like an, a, a corrective approach um, to, to history in that you now have um, the tools um, to create uh, counter-hegemonic um, narratives. Thanks. Matsalitso, did you have a question you wanted to ask? Hi, everyone. Yeah, um, I feel like a lot of my questions were already kind of addressed in, in the discussion, but... Um, so 
most it or some of the things that stood out was the colonial archives and Sisa Men could kind of touch on how one had historically, you know, used to yes, can you hear? Yeah. Hi. No. Yeah, you you completely went uh, metal voice. So if you can repose your question, that'd be lovely. Okay. Uh, my question is around the like agency of um, people that were that were captured in colonial archives or colonial film archives, and I'm curious about how a filmmaker and, a, and an archival practitioner encounters that with a medium that was historically used to kind of oppress in a way and, and, and observe from a particular lens. And I was wondering if both Jihan and Sifisa could speak a little bit about, you know, how they encounter that in the archives that they've worked with. And, and then just finally, a quick one is around, you know, the iconic and these these figures that have become central to liberation struggles. And you mentioned Mandela in the discussion, and I wonder how then, um, you know, in addition to appropriating the archive in various ways, do you propose um, one can speak about these historical victories or losses without, you know, making um, too, too, ex too much of an explicit use, I suppose, of you know images of violence or images of these really iconic moments. I think, um, yeah, essentially what I'm asking is how do you incorporate incorporate the everyday in your process of engage, engaging with the archive and 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 you know making films. Thanks. Thank you, Matilda. Um Jihan has another panel. Uh, coming up, um, so she will have to leave very shortly. So maybe Jihan, you can um, respond first. Okay, Sifi, so maybe you wanna go and give, yeah. All right, um, so on the idea of agency, and I mean- Sorry, um, can you hear me? Uh, we can hear you now, Jihan. Please go ahead. Sorry, sorry, this is um, turning into a, a nightmare. But can you hear me? Yes, we can. Oh, okay. L let me just very briefly say about the, um, uh, the uh, incorporating daily life. I think, I think daily is a piece of mentioned architecture as an element. I think it's a very important thing to remember because our spatiality is something that is very ignored. And I think in film, you manage to capture space, architecture, and all these are uh, hints that will be interpreted in the future. I think, I think it's very dangerous to think that the, what we are doing today, we're thinking of it today as archive, but archiving the future is about being conscious that what it is we leave behind needs to be contextualized, needs to be indexed, needs to be to, to, to know who's in these images, what it is. So I think it adds an additional obligation onto those who make images, especially at a time where we are flooded with images. Don't forget TikTok. TikTok could become our narrative. And we know, and, and, and selfies, 
And we know today because we're living it, that the image we portray of ourselves, our desire for alternative representation has become the mass of the images that exist. So, so it's how do we deal with, and in every era, it's the same. How do we deal with the images of the 60s when we know that in the 60s, the cameras, you didn't have beta cams yet. Every time you send the camera out, it's a 35 millimeter. So just to get the stock for it and to send a, a camera out has its implications on the image. Then you get into VHS and beta. So the mobility of the image creates a different aspect. And now each one of us has a phone and what that means and how we create these images do affect the future. So I think contextualizing all of this in our daily life is really important. And on this note, I would say thank you very much. And um, I, I accept the critique of the footnote, even if I didn't hear it, um, but I still want to contest it. <laughs> thank you very much, Omar. Thank, thank you, Spiso. Thank, thank, thank you, everybody there. And sorry, I have to yep. jump off board for a minute. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, so um, on the question of agency, um, this is something that I've started sort of like consciously engaging um, because I realized that there's limitations to, you know, to how, you know, native or in my context, you know, Black South Africans participated in the creation of these archives. Um, and I think what is clear when you spend time with a lot of archives is that both in, you know, the um, sort of film cinema space, and again, in sort of like the documentary or even newsreel space, is that the archives are the same depending on, you know, or largely the same depending on the period that they were made and the outcomes or what they were created for. So you will move from, you know, a lot of sort of like um, ethnographic um, film in the turn of the century, um, where, you know, we're literally sort of portrayed as savages. So if there is a narrative, it will be about, um, you know, the savagehood of the people that you're seeing on screen. Um, and it sort of sort of moves, right? It changes to a point where you see a little bit more Black participation. Um, but like I said earlier on, this Black participation is uh, minstrelly. Um, it's sort of still kind of like reductionist because it doesn't talk about the conditions of the people. Um, so if you go into the 50s, um, in South African archives, both, you know, in, it, it's more about, you know, the identity formations of the time, what people were um, listening to, you know, sort of like what they were dressing, their interest in sports and in, in, in boxing. And you find this sort of across the board, you know, this is the archives that you'll see if you sort of like look at the South African cinema from that time, late 40s, 50s, you'll see Zonk, um, you'll see um, African Gym, um, these are largely sort of like films, sorry, films that were largely produced by um, white filmmakers who saw an opportunity to tell um, black stories for black audiences. But, um, you know, they say nothing about the conditions of the people on screen. So um, you realize that every era that you deal with, um, there is something that happens. There's a sort of like a magic that happens where if you spend enough time, the subject in those, um, <clears throat> in those archives 
there are moments where they sort of are kind of speak back, you know, and it could be just a brief moment where they look straight into camera. Um, and what that moment says to you is um, a lot of the time is that, you know, with everything that's happening here, there's a level of discomfort um, with, um, with being captured on screen. And you realize that, um, you know, maybe there may have been limits um, to their participation. And I think that um, I engage with this consciously um, <clears throat> because in my extracting um, some of the images and creating um, a new narrative from them, there's a responsibility because it says that these are, you know, people who weren't entirely in control in the making of these images or who weren't um, entirely free, um, you know, and I mean, we can even go deeper and maybe question, you know, how much they were paid and that sort of thing and how, you know, how, you know, sort of speaks, how that speaks to their agency. And I think that part of the, uh, sorry, the responsibility in talking about representation is how, as a filmmaker, um, in your narratives, how you can be more um, affirming um, of those identities, um, or you know how you can affirm those identities a bit more. And I spoke a little bit earlier about um, what's referred to as salvage as, as, as ethnography, you know. Um, and I think um, there is there needs to be a level of um, awareness and cognizance and and and. Um, responsibility that speaks directly towards um, issues of representation. Um, and I think Chihan touched it on the nose when she said that we're no longer interested in how big your nose has to be. Yes, maybe, um, because we also realize that that kind of history has been documented and we've been having those conversations over and over again. But how do we create counter um, narratives or in, you know narratives that are counter hegemonic? And I think that's where the responsibility comes in. And maybe the distinction also comes in between, say, an artist um, who's a filmmaker and a historian, is that it's, you know, questions around agency um, and, you know, what we, you know, what needs to be preserved and what doesn't and what needs to be uh, remixed um, comes into play. And um, this is something that's also sort of um, taken a lot of preoccupation in my work in that um, I recently, maybe not so recently, but about three, four years ago, I made a music video for an artist um, made completely out of colonial archives and, the, and, and apartheid archives um, where, you know, a lot of them were made sort of like denigrate African um, history and, you know, African people. And the exercise for me was about how to create, um, I'll see if I can find a link and, and, and post it in the, in the chat box for, for the video. But how um, it was experiment, it was an experiment um, in creating something, something completely new that sort of is taken completely off or outside of that context um, and has a new meaning. I don't know if that answers your question uh, sufficiently. Yes, perfect, thank you. Somebody else has um, questions you would like to ask? Um, I actually, uh, if nobody asks, um, I had another question for you, Sifi, so that I wanted to ask you both actually, because I know that uh, Jihan as well on her 
uh, project on people's stories, he's been trying to think about what it means to work with image, but also how to go beyond image. And I know that you, in your work, as well as you were saying, you've been working with music, and I wonder how that, you know, contributes to reappropriate the, the image, um, working with sound and with music, uh, and if there is there. And also, if you know, you can say something more about your latest project, um, latest film, future film. Okay. All right. Um, so yeah, I think what's interesting also is, you know, I think music generally adds like um, a completely different reading of um, the aesthetics of a film. And what I found in my work also is that, you know, um, when it comes to sound in a film, um, it's generally very easier now. And I think it's the influence of classical music um, to go towards sort of like, you know, um, strings um, to sort of, um, you know, portray um, or maybe invoke the feeling of um, sort of like, you know, the deeper emotions, you know, nostalgia, longing. And that's, you know, that kind of thing. And if you're dealing with danger, you know, you bring in sort of like the percussive sound, you know, the drum. So I think um, to some level, you know, um, over time, um, certain sounds um, have gone on to represent specific kinds of feelings in cinema, you know. Um, and I find it very interesting when I see African films that have a lot of strings, for example, you know, where you hear a lot of violins. Um, <clears throat> or maybe even, you know, hear a lot of, uh, of, of like um, the piano. Um, and I wonder about, you know, um, that kind of um, sort of like, you know, sonic representation of those moments and whether or not the characters who are being portrayed in that moment um, and, you know, their feelings could be interpreted as what the film sort of um, is aiming to do. And I think the interesting thing for me about, uh, about going into music is really trying to find or move closer um, to the authenticity of, of like the moments you see on screen with music and what, you know, and what that feels like. Um, I think that what's offered us with um, the films emerging out of West Africa in the 60s and 70s by Chitrobi of Mabeti and um, Osman Tsemben, um, and maybe, you know, uh, Suleiman Sese is that, you know, the authenticity of those moments were not necessarily just about like the characters, what they were saying, what they were critiquing and, um, um, and sort of like the messaging of the film, you know, a lot of the film sort of like dealt with the post-colonial condition, um, which, you know, was sort of, you know, an overriding narrative throughout, you know, a lot of countries that were um, going through liberation at, at the time. Time in the 60s, but what we did, what we do see in those films or um, experience is a complete um, sort of break away from sort of like the aesthetic constructs of how you know I think a lot of the world had understood cinema to be up until that point. Um, in that they feel you know um, there's a you kind of like you know also feel the authenticity with with as far as as far as the music is concerned in the, in the film. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I sort of kind of found this interesting and I find that um, South Africa, for example, um, and South Africa cinema, it's, a, it's kind of a cinema that's very much concerned with the urban, you know, 
with the urban environment. And I feel like there's also, we've had a lot of missed opportunities to sort of define our own cinema voice um, or our own cinematic language, um, because it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's continuously responding um, to this idea of what it means to be free. Um, and so I think it's also, you know, um, continuously evolving as well. So um, it's, it's kind of very hard to pin down a South African sort of like cinema voice, whereas, you know, the films of the 60s and 70s that emerged from West Africa are sort of uh, canonical, you know. Um, you can watch one film and you can tell without knowing the filmmaker or, it's, or the country it was made. You can say, oh, this is, you know, um, this is um, West African 70s. So I think um, it becomes really important to sort of ask questions around that, um, around identities, um, <clears throat> you know, or sonic identities in, 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 in film, how we sort of like represent ourselves uh, through sound. Thanks so much, Sifisov. So I'm not sure um, there are more questions um, out there. Um, I don't see any hands, um, but um, I think that was just uh, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for um, sharing um, all of that. And I really look forward to uh, maybe meet you here in Belgium or over there in uh, South Africa. Uh, so um, thank you so much again for sharing. And um, yeah, um, I really hope to, to see you soon. And uh, and thanks everybody for staying until the very end. And uh, we look forward to see you in the, the next uh, seminar of our series. Um, I think that's going to be all. Um, thank you so much. And.